So good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm David Hempton. I'm the Dean of the Harvard Divinity School. And I'm delighted to welcome all of you to our fourth and final symposium in the series on religious literacy and the professions. Um, this time, as you know, our focus is on media and entertainment. So welcome, everyone. We're really delighted to have you with us. If we had a red carpet, believe me, we would have ruled it out for this gathering. Yeah, we don't have a crimson carpet. Either. But so this symposium is funded by our friend and benefactor, Bruce McEver, who is himself an alumnus of the school. And today's and tomorrow's events are supported by the Religious Literacy Project at the Divinity School and by Boston University, where I also taught for many years until they got rid of me. Um, <laughs> So I'm really delighted that my colleague, uh, Stephen Prothero, Steve, uh, um, from our neighboring university across the river, uh, is here with us tonight. Thank you, Steve, for being here. Our list of panelists and attendees is impressive and brings together a group of very talented people in the fields of religion, media, entertainment, and the film industry. So welcome, everyone, and please permit me to say a special word of welcome to our Keynote speaker tonight, uh, Abigail Disney, uh, right here in the corner. Um, her documentary film, which m many of you know, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, also played a really important part in, our, uh, in the founding of our thriving RPP initiative, um, Religions and the Practice of Peace, and also with a bicentennial uh, lecture that was delivered here by Lema Bowie. Um, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for her activities portrayed in this uh, wonderful film. So if you haven't seen, seen it, it's really uh, worth seeing. So over the past two years, the Religious Literacy and the Professions Symposia have generated rich conversations between scholars and professionals in a variety of fields, including journalism, humanitarian action, government, and now media and entertainment. It has been a fascinating series of very high-powered meetings that blossomed into extremely interesting and fruitful dialogues. So these conversations have shown that religious literacy is critical, not just for students, teachers, and religious leaders, but for a broad array of professionals in various fields, uh, and indeed for the wider world. So that's why we're here. The constant theme across the symposia has been the need for people to know more about and to better understand religion in order to understand their wider cultural milieus. For this outstanding series of events, and in particular for the one we're about to participate in, I want to say a very warm thanks um, uh, to my colleague Diane Moore, the director of the Religious Literacy Project at HDS, um, as well as her uh, staff who have been, and possibly still are, working tirelessly on these uh, high-impact events. Uh, so thank you, uh, uh, Sarah Bin, uh, Levi Brightman, Lauren Kirby, and uh, anyone else who I've missed, uh, Judy, and others who have played a really big part in uh, putting this on. Thank you. Yeah. If we look in the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Religions, which I know you do every night before you go to sleep, um, we find the following entry by Stephen Randall, which goes through the intriguing weaving together of religion and entertainment throughout the centuries here in the United States. He writes, quote, the evangelical surge in the 18th century brought with it a lively and riveting preaching style, represented by celebrity ministers like George Whitfield and Gilbert Tennant. Uh, Whitfield may have spoken to more uh, Americans in the 18th century than any other person. That faced the ire of their more traditional foes for using vulgar methods to reach the masses. 
In the 19th century, African Americans in slavery and freedom expressed their faith in ways that combined religious systems, dancing, and music traditions from Africa and the Americas. Evangelical churches and prominent figures used entertainment to proselytize, illustrate the drama salvation and damnation, and to enliven services. This is all from this encyclopedia. Temperance, anti-slavery, and other reformist groups employed music, novels, and theater to spread their message. Pentecostals and other evangelicals took up new forms in the 20th century. They, they eagerly made use of radio, film, and later television. The well-known evangelist who died recently, Billy Graham, was a skillful pioneer of new media and was a worldwide figure. So the latest media formats have been used throughout history to promote religious traditions, and now increasingly they're being used to understand religious traditions in their wider cultural context. So our symposium series has revealed multiple possibilities for how the Religious Literacy Project can work to expand the public's religious literacy and generate new avenues for doing so. These avenues have included important collaborations with organizations such as Oxfam and UNICEF, and broadening the Religious Literacy Program's workshop training program from its focus on educators to include professionals in a variety of fields, um, including but not limited to humanitarian action and media and entertainment. So this particular symposium engages the media and entertainment industry. It begins with the recognition that people in the United States spend a tremendous amount of time engaged with media. The Nielsen Report estimates in the region of 11 hours a day. And much of that time is spent seeking entertainment. Consequently, this symposium begins with the assumption and assertion that we need to think more carefully and deeply about how entertainment functions to inform and shape audiences' understanding of religions. Just as an aside, at this symposium we will treat largely film and TV, but it's worth noting that if we had more time, um, uh, we would deal with gaming and social media uh, and other uh, areas. Um, so additionally, this symposium investigates how media and entertainment as a business can be harnessed to help cultivate a public that is more literate with respect to religion and religions, even though we know very well that those very words, religion and religions, have all kinds of negative connotations, which is one of the problems we grapple with. So the panels for tomorrow include a compelling mix of media professionals, consultants and scholars, um, maybe not enough for a riveting movie script, but certainly enough for the entertainment and benefit of all the participants in the symposium. So we're really looking forward to what's ahead. So now, please, without further ado, allow me briefly to introduce my colleague, Diane Moore, who is the founding director of the Religious Literacy Project here at the Harvard Divinity School. He's also a senior scholar at the Center for the Study of World Religions and a lecturer on religion, conflict, and peace. Furthermore, Diane is also the principal investigator for the Religious Literacy and the Professions Initiative and the driving force behind it. Um, it's now my pleasure to invite Diane Moore to the lectern and to expand a bit more on the methods and aims of the Religious Literacy Project in this symposium. So Diane, thank you, and Steve also. Steve Prowler has done uh, really wonderful work in uh, partnering with BU and Harvard and bringing this wonderful series uh, to pass. So we're grateful to both of you. Um, and thank you for your team uh, for making this possible. So, and all, all of you, we're really delighted you're with us. So we look forward to a great conference. Thank you. Thank you, David. It's really important for all of us involved in here at Harvard and at the Religious Literacy Project, particularly, particularly this initiative that, that Steve and I 
have had the privilege of working together to, to construct, uh, to thank David for his um, remarkable support throughout this uh, project. It's a, new, it's a new way to think about the work of the academy is to think about what does it mean to promote and link academic study with the actual practice of experience uh, of professions across a wide range and we couldn't have done it without your support, so thank you. A couple other quick thank yous and then my task is to give you a kind of overview of what we're after when we talk about religious literacy and I'll be brief about that and then I have the, uh, the, both the privilege and the challenge of um, introducing Abigail Disney to you and then we'll move right into your, your, converse, your, your presentation. So the thank yous, I, I want to just acknowledge again the important uh, partnership that we have with BU on this project and Steve Prothero's really important work on religious literacy, groundbreaking work on this. And so, and to thank again Bruce McGever, our, our, our benefactor for this series. It would be very short-sighted of me not to spend another hour and a half talking about the contributions of Sarah Ben Levy Brightman and Lauren Kirby, who really are the driving force behind not just the logistics of this project, but the intellectual framing of what we're doing. And they really have been front and center of this, along with, and then I will ask you for wild applause after this <laughs> moment, uh, Mario Cater Fresh, who's a colleague and with us now, and uh, also now um, a fellow here at the Religious Literacy Project, who uh, has worked with us for, for a long time, has been with us for in a number of capacities, but it was really Mario's vision for this particular symposium, which was originally just framed as business, but because of Mario's rich experience in media and entertainment industry and his deep belief in the importance of expanding religious literacy, it was really his vision uh, and, that, and, and then Sarah Bin and Lauren's uh, capacity to pull this together with the intellectual richness and diversity that we have. So please, can we give all three of them a really <laughs> Finally, I want to just say welcome to our online audience, uh, whether you are seeing it now or you're going to see it in, you know, in, <laughs> into the next millennia, probably, the way these things tend to be. And a special, special welcome to the symposium participants who are here in the, in the audience with us. I'm so grateful for your taking time to be with us, to help us think about these critical questions, um, and to take time out of your enormously busy schedules. It me means a lot to us, and we are incredibly grateful and look forward very much to our time together tomorrow. So brief briefly, um, I want to say that the Religious Literacy Project itself and this symposium is dedicated to promoting and enhancing the public understanding of religion. And what we mean by that uh, is, 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 um, is quite capacious. And I just want to say that everything about the project and about our work is based on three fundamental tenets. And those tenets are that there's a widespread lack of assumption or illiteracy about religion that spans the globe. Um, and that the second tenet is that that illiteracy has significant consequences. And they have consequences in many arenas. But the ones that we're most concerned about and, and deeply uh, committed to try to minimize are the civil civic consequences of illiteracy. And our assertion and experience is that a lack of understanding about religion fuels bigotry and prejudice and hinders cooperative opportunities in both local and all, local, national, and global arenas. 
And then the third assumption that fuels everything we do is that a better understanding of religion, a more capacious, a more complex understanding of religion, and its power, its power to promote both heinous crimes against humanity as well as its power to inspire remarkable, uh, generous, uh, sometimes unimaginable opportunities for, for peace and hope that that power of religion, if we better understand that power, that we can minimize the negative consequences and use of religion or re representation of religion and enhance its, its positive dimensions. So that's what frames this understanding. And it, then examples of illiteracy about religion, uh, simple ones, three, three fundamental ones uh, in broad categories, is that we often think of religions as internally uniform. We talk about Islam as though there's one Islam. We talk about Christianity as though there's one of those. Um, and then we make judgments about those, positive or negative. Islam is a religion of peace. No, Islam is a religion of terror. Um, you know, all Christians oppose abortion. Uh, Christianity, Buddhists are all nonviolent. I mean, these assumptions are uh, problematic. Uh, and, and in fact, the, the, that's a representation of a problematic assumption and assertion about religion. Uh, the second problematic assumption and assertion about religion is that religions are ahistorical. That when we think about religion, it's only about religious or ritual belief and practice. And that we think we know something about Buddhism when we know the Four Noble Truths, or Islam when we know the Five Pillars, or Christianity and Judaism if we know the Ten Commandments. In fact, the, the, and that assumes again that this is ahistorical, that throughout time, all Muslims and Christians and Jews and Buddhists have believed these things that also hinders our ability to understand the ways that religions are deeply uh, evolve and change in, in our living traditions and are affected by cultural, social, historical contexts. And then the third assumption is that religion is an isolated experience, that religion's over here and, and divorced from our political, economic, and social understandings, and that somehow religion is a separate category. And international relations theory, of course, has promoted that notion of religion for hundreds of years, literally, and it was literally considered the third rail in international relations theory for the longest time. It's both, you could, you could ignore it, first because it was relatively inconsequential to the political, economic, and social structures that international relations were concerned about, and secondly, that, you, that it, you, it's, it's worth ignoring because, uh, because it's inconsequential. It's changing, but slowly. Uh, we recognize, of course, that those assumptions have been very dangerous. Uh, uh, and that finally movements in international relations theory, but I think larger questions of religion, we know that, that that's a really problematic set of assumptions that religion can be isolated or that it's only about ritual belief and practice. So those illiterate frameworks, that religions are uniform and that they're uh, ahistorical, represent what uh, Adichie calls the single story. Uh, Adichie is a wonderful Nigerian author, um, novelist, who's got a TED talk that's got like 12 billion hits, you know, I swear. I, I, although I think I'm like one billion times I've seen it, so I'm at least a, a, a one twelfth of those, those 12 billion. Still, she uh, has this rich uh, representation of, of, of what she calls the danger of a single story. And, and I will not in any way try to reproduce that remarkable, but I would highly recommend it. But what she, what she speaks about is that what happens when we have a single story of anything and the illiterate uh, the ways that I've just mentioned about religion or representation of that form of illiteracy, a single story, is it really it becomes uh, uh, dangerous in a lot of ways. And I, and, I, and I just highlight this to encourage you to take a look at it. 
The reason I'm raising that is because I want to recognize that all the, when we think about that religions are internally diverse, that they evolve and change and that they're embedded, the only way we understand that or know that is through story, through individual story, through the power of story, the power of what it means to look at the particular to understand something more profound about the universal. And so it is so appropriate for us that we would have the end of our symposium series to be about media and entertainment, which is, of course, rooted in the experience and the expression of story. So let me say, though, back to Adiche, that, that she reminds us, of course, that stories are not benign. And this is a quote from the end of that remarkable, wonderful uh, TED talk that I can't believe I actually have to write it, because if you've seen it a billion times, you think you could memorize the whole thing, but I do want to read this to make sure I capture her accurately. Stories matter. She says, many stories matter. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign, but stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. So we're incredibly privileged tonight to have as our keynote speaker, the person who's going to kick off our, our remarkable set of conversations tomorrow, Abigail Disney. Because in my experience of learning and knowing about her work and learning more about her work in the past month or so, that Abigail Disney has dedicated her career um, to representing films through films that highlight stories that, in Adichie's words, empower and humanize. Now, I have a confession to make. I, I did um, a deep dive. I've known of your work for a long time. That, that remarkable film, uh, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, had a powerful impact on me. And, it, and then I realized who you were when, I, when we started putting this together. Um, so then I had the privilege of doing this deep dive into like the, the black hole of internet research. <laughs> and I literally got lost. Uh, and at some point, I'm sure it turned from research into voyeurism and apologies. I'm not sure how that or when that, that line was crossed. But I, I am fascinated and so inspired by the work that you do, deeply. Um, and I, I'm like not a groupie person, but I am starting <laughs> the like Cambridge version of the Abigail Disney fan club and come to me. And if you don't already want to belong, you will, I'm sure, by the end of the evening. Seriously, so honestly, it is a remarkable privilege. So much of what you actually do is what so many of us here and me, definitely I can speak for myself, try to teach. That's what our teaching is about, is what does it mean to do what you do? And so let me try to capture in a very small way what I, what a little piece of what you do. So Ms. Disney, Abigail, is a filmmaker, a producer, a philanthropist, and an award-winning director. She is the CEO and president of Fork Films. At some point, I got to hear, like, why Fork Films? That, I, but that's a different conversation. Fork Films a documentary production company responsible for the groundbreaking uh, film, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, but also a PBS film series, Women, War and Peace, and several other really critical films that, um, that I also lost sleep for the last two weeks watching in the middle of the night when I didn't have time to do it otherwise. She's the founder and president of Peace is Loud. So great, isn't it? 
I, that's clearer to me than Fork Films. Peace is Loud, a nonprofit that uses media and live events to highlight stories of women working for peace. And recently, Abigail Disney co-founded Level Forward, a startup studio venture that aims to focus on backing projects driven by women and persons of color. So it's clear to me that in all of Abigail Disney's initiatives are founded on the belief that film has a unique capacity. This is out of the fork film, and this is the power of what she does. Has a unique capacity to shed light, to evoke compassion, and stir action. Guided by this belief, Fork Films invests in and creates media with a particular emphasis on, and please listen carefully to these, with a particular emphasis on material that has been overlooked, people who tend to be underestimated, and stories that have been left out of the mainstream historical record. So in short, Abigail Disney has dedicated her career to highlighting the stories of ordinary people who through courage, imagination, and grit have broken through the suffocating barriers of the probable to open up pathways of hope for us all in showing us what's possible. So with that, let me please turn over the lectern to Abigail Disney. Please give her a warm Suffocating barriers of the probable. I'm taking that home with me. Wow, that was beautiful. Um, wow, thank you. Um, so I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm going to be reading because this is sort of like off the beaten track for me a little bit. And I wanted to be sure I said everything I wanted to say because this, this is an important issue for me. So I'm going to start at the personal and then work out to the universal. And sometimes we do it the other way around. It all depends. <laughs> Um, all the best things that have ever happened to me or that I've ever done, I've done by accident. It's really um, not a good way to go through life. <laughs> it's exciting. So this is my way of telling you a very fundamental thing about my spiritual composition. I trust serendipity. Serendipity has served me well. Serendipity has served me so well and so often and, and so consistently that I have a hard time believing that something higher than serendipity might just be in operation. And yet, I can't quite bring myself to name whatever that higher thing is. I was brought up in an Irish Catholic and mighty conservative home, and that upbringing gave me an affinity for and a constant consciousness of, and a deep respect for spirituality but it also sent me running for the exits. It just as soon as my parents could no longer ground me for not going to mass on a Sunday. It was the sort of church that did a hellfire and brimstone sermon every Sunday, but, but in Southern California, you need to know when they tell you what brimstone is, and I'm not making this up, the Monsignor will actually describe to you, you know when your dad starts the barbecue? That's literally how he defined brimstone for us. And they made us confess every week, even when I was pretty sure I hadn't done anything wrong, but we were encouraged to make something up. <laughs> now, I mean no disrespect to Catholics nor to people of faith in general, but I have made a lot of runs in my adult life um, to, to go back to some kind of institu institutional church, any institutional church, 
And they've always ended the same way. In Southern California, people are fond of saying, I'm spiritual, but not religious. You've heard that before. I have to say, so many institutional churches feel religious, but not spiritual to me, more like obstacles than conduits to spirituality. That's just me, of course, and so I have come to call myself a fundamentalist agnostic. Um, I figure I was just not meant to pick a team, and once I stopped trying to pick a team, I found myself comfortable in a spirituality that made sense to me. So here I am, a 58-year-old fundamentalist agnostic who has done everything I cared about most in the world by accident, <laughs> trusting with childlike ardor the, the whims of spirit, uh, serendipity, and finding that I've developed a reputation for making films with religious themes, not being over with a feather. I did not see that coming. <laughs> so I started my first film in 2006. I was 46 years old, which is a little late to be a beginner at something as complex as filmmaking. But I did figure I was working with a little bit of a head start, having come from a family that was somewhat known for its storytelling. <laughs> I had gone to Liberia as a philanthropist, um, and I basically tripped and fell over a story that would become the film called Pray the Devil Back to Hell. I can show you the trailer if you want to see it, or I can just keep talking. Should I show the trailer? OK. OK. You know, I, I'm going to show the Oh, what's the password here? <laughs> um, only because I, because as a filmmaker, I happen to know a person talking is nice, but a film is always much more exciting. Money, greed, ethnicity, absolute power. There is nothing that should make people do what they did to the children of Liberia. <laughs> The warlords who gave these boys guns and send them off. They just do anything because they had guns. You go to bed saying, God, please. What do we do? The women of Liberia want peace now. I had a dream. And it was like a crazy dream. We decided to protest. We wore the white, saying to people we were out for peace. Thousands of women, Muslim and Christian, were coming together from different walks of life. These women had seen the worst, but they still had that vibrance for life. And we said, well, if I should get killed, just remember me that I was fighting for peace. We stepped out first and did the unimaginable. To send out a signal to the world that we, the Liberian women, we are tired of the killing of our people. We can do it again if we want to.
The idea of making a film when I went to Liberia was the furthest thing from my mind. I ran from Southern California. I ran, and I did not look back, and I didn't want anything to do with my family or what my family did. So I came home with this story, and holding this story and knowing it and not making it be known seemed like an act of the deepest negligence on my part. I really couldn't face it. So you get a sense of what the version of the story is that we told. It's a group of women, Muslim and Christian, who work out their differences. They come together on a field and they pray and they fast and they sing. They wear white because they share Esther. So in other words, they knew to mine their respective spiritual traditions for something that brought them together and not something that pulled them apart. That's religious literacy, if you ask me. Um, and they went to the field where they sat in the sun and the rain. And I'm telling you, in Liberia, the sun is the fire and the rain is the fire hose. It is no easy, no easy proposition. The dictator, Charles Taylor, had said, I will, I will arrest my own mother if she goes out there to protest. And they went out there every day for months on end. And they pressured the men to go to peace talks. They followed them to the peace talks. They protested outside of those peace talks. And when the, when the process broke down, the women locked their arms surrounded the building, locked their arms, and sent a note in saying, we're taking you all hostage for the women of Liberia. It's fantastic. They said, we'll give you a week. That's Lema saying, we will do it again if we want to. I love it. I have her whole thing memorized. <laughs> um, they gave them a week to come to an agreement, and exactly one week later, the agreement was signed in 2003. Uh, 15 years later, we're still in peace in Liberia. It's not a perfect place, but it's certainly not a place at war. So it doesn't sound like a particularly religious story, per se, but the interviews that we did that formed the, the spine of the story referred to faith over and over and over again. And our main character, Lema Bowie, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2011, is a very spiritual woman who refers to her faith again and again and again. And I love the fact that she is not at all intimidated by being in rooms filled with people who are not comfortable with her references to her faith. So here's the thing about documentary filmmakers. Uh, we belong to a pretty predictable demographic. Um, I call us the pointy-headed coastal elites. <laughs> we are liberal and modern and sophisticated and way too cool for God. So um, you know how this demographic treats religion in general. There's an allergy to religion and, and to spirituality in general among the folks who do this kind of film. And when they find a character who refers a lot to their faith, they judiciously snip around them in the edit room. Um, they're embarrassed for that person. They, they, they snip and they snip the references to Jesus and to God and to prayer and to the Bible with, frankly, the conscientiousness they would use if the character's digestive tract had made a terrible sound. I'm telling you. Among the lefties who make the kind of films I make, and I love these people, I believe this is a terrible weakness. There is an aversion to faith that borders on the neurotic. And it undermines the reach of the films that we make. And that's kind of stupid. Shouldn't it trouble us that we don't get as far as we want to get? A filmmaker will often avoid faith's influence on a movement. They will pretend it has had no influence on their characters, and they will leave a gaping silence rather than credit faith for a social change. So I love my people. But among them, and among more generally most of the people making the content mainstream Americans watch, from TV to movies to video games, religion is the last acceptable prejudice. 
And I don't have to tell you how poorly treated people are in, of faith are in mainstream religion. Just think of the uh, preacher in Inherit the Winds and Carrie's mother, who uh, finally causes her daughter to kill everybody at the prom, although I was tempted at the prom myself. Um, <laughs> Christians take the beating from nearly every corner in the entertainment world. And Muslims don't even get me started. At least documentarians are a little bit imitated for Muslims because we figure they're an oppressed class, but don't, don't ask us to go into religion with them. But as for me, I am lucky girl. I do not have to dance to anybody's tune. I do not have to please program officers at foundations. I don't really care what anybody thinks of me, and it's remarkable how freeing that is to not really care. And I was 46 when I started my film career, so honestly, I had nothing to lose. And while I may be structurally incapable of aligning myself with any particular religion, I cannot abide the mocking or the belittling or the smug derision of people of faith. I may have run for the exits of my Catholic childhood at the first opportunity, but it turns out that sprinting for the exit had not prevented the church from leaving a deep and indelible mark on me. I figure you can't run from the Sermon on the Mount once you've heard it. <laughs> So I'm not a person of faith per se, but I do believe in faith itself. I believe that faith has driven pretty much everything good this world has ever known. And while it's popular lately for the show business atheists to point to ISIS and accuse religion of being the source of all violence, I believe that if you added together all of the religious violence through all of history and stacked it up against all of the acts of kindness, and the men and women who offer a sandwich to a hungry person and help an old lady across the street and the collection plates that have fed and housed and clothed people around the world and the marches that have marched against Jim Crow and the Vietnam War and the bomb and the jailing of children at the border. I think if you put all of those things up against each other, religion wins hand down. So when our lead character in Pray the Devil Back to Hell told us that it was Jesus telling her to lead the Liberian women, I was not inclined to snip it around that bit and pretend she never said it. What's more, who would I think I was to do such a thing? It's my job to show her as she is, not who I wish she were. And in judging her motives, who would I be to declare that saying Jesus wants her to do something is any less rational than doing the right thing or doing the brave thing? Um, the film came by its interesting title because Lema, our lead character, ha had made the strategic decision to go for the men where their religious faith was. She said, Charles Taylor went to church and, the, and Lord, the rebels went to the mosque. She said, Charles Taylor could pray the devil out of hell. I always loved that. He was such a con man, he could pray the devil out of hell. And when you're making a film, Geraldine knows this, you watch it 750 million times, you're really sick of it, you never want to see it again. Um, but in the middle of the 750 million screening, my partner had it, said, oh my God, they prayed the devil back to hell. I was so thrilled with that title because it was inviting to people of faith. It was not um, a declaration of war, as so many titles are, like Jesus Camp, um, which I don't like to criticize other filmmakers. Um, but there were a million, reasons why these women were smart enough and brave enough and strategic enough to do what they did, but without that one more ingredient, which was faith, it's hard to imagine they would have been able to maintain the cohesion, 
the loyalty and the courage they needed because there was near constant derision and mockery and threats. So I'm proud that Play the Devil Back to Hell very consciously posited religion as part of the answer and not part of the problem. And I think that's why it's gotten a lot of traction around the world. So on to Armor of Light, which makes me, I know I'm going forward, but I have to go way back to explain it to you. Armor of Light was my first crack at directing. I started in 2013, but way back when I had teeny tiny little children, um, I wrote a PhD in um, English at Columbia, and I found myself writing about American war novels. I do not know why I did that. <laughs> I had no experience of war, I didn't know anybody who had an experience of war, but there was something about the phenomenon that I could not look away from, and I just decided to follow that. And writing that dissertation began a process in me that continues to this day. I became attentive to weapons. I studied their history. I studied their, their industrial implications. I studied all of their design qualities. And I became attentive to weapons proliferation. And in particular, the toxic effect of abundant small arms on a culture. And my time in Liberia reinforced my conviction that there is much to fear and a copious supply of available, powerful, and reliable firearms. I, I cannot in my life ever forget noticing the number of bullet holes in some places. Because, like, you know, you can, you can get used to seeing something like a lot of bullet holes and just drive right by them and say, oh, look, a lot of bullet holes. But if you really stop and consider that every bullet hole is an attempted murder, it really does cause you to reconsider what went on and ask yourself where, how, so much hate, how much terror and anger and bloodshed. So whether or not America has a problem or is at risk from the problem of a proliferation of small arms, I think it is. I think we haven't seen the half of it today. There was a shooting yesterday. There's a shooting in Maryland today. Um, America is driving the proliferation around the world, and we have a lot to answer for on that. What's more, my work on Pray the Devil Back to Hell and later on Women, War, and Peace for PBS brought me into relationship with peace builders around the world. I studied these people and I found them to be extraordinary people. I wanted to understand them, I wanted to learn from them, and I did, and then one day I sort of got hit by a bolt of lightning, actually in the middle of a speech I was giving in northern Mexico, and I thought to myself, how dare I, an American woman, stand in front of you and talk about peace? I have to say that if I didn't take what I had learned and find a way to build peace in my own country, given my country's role in war and violence around the world, then I was just another feckless do-gooder. And these people had all built peace in their own countries, in their own context. And you have to think about how you feel about the activists on the issue you care about on the opposite side right next to you, as opposed to how you feel about the activist 3,000 miles away on an issue you don't care about. Building peace in your own context is the hardest thing to do. The closer you get to the center of the conflict, the hotter the feelings run. And after Lema won that Nobel Peace Prize, uh, for every one librarian who will tell you she's a great woman, there are 50 librarians who will tell you why she's the worst person in the world. Desmond Tutu warned her when she won the prize. He called her, he congratulated her, and he said, but don't go home, not for a while. <laughs> He said, no one is a prophet in his own land, which 
is very profound. It's easier to be a hero to people who don't really know you and don't know the nuances of your political situation. Nevertheless, it hit me. Uh, I had to be a peace builder in my own context. And in fact, I kind of have a hard time imagining another context besides America that needs a peace builder or a lot of peace building right now, given that we have an affection for and a tendency to romanticize, even sexualize, and manufacture and sell weapons around the world. So to me, the problem of peace building in America is a complex and multi-generational project. It starts with dismantling all the ideology that traps us in a cycle of violence. And it's a cycle that's so small and so vicious and so all-consuming that there are very few of us who can even see far enough in front of our faces to see that it might be possible to do things a different way. When you say to people, conflict is inevitable, but violence isn't, you see eyebrows go up like that, oh. <laughs> it's extraordinary how we've lost our capacity for so many tools. Orthodoxies go unquestioned. Leaders are put in place that reinforce the cycle in a way we go again and again with no better arrow in our quiver for resolving problems than force. The biggest obstacle to change is always to believe that it cannot happen. Belief is the heart and everything about social change. Not law, not government, not anything institutional. When belief changes, everything follows after that. And what do we in the entertainment business do? We manufacture belief. That's our stock and trade. And by the way, what are we talking about when we're talking about religion but belief? They should be able to work in concert with each other far better than they do, given how constant their, their missions are. Film is a magic medium. It tears apart the wall between you and your cultural consciousness. It shuts down time and space. It leaves you in this alternative place where you forget what you were worried about when you walked in the door. You forget even who you are in most ways. And in those moments, you are so open to influence, and Hollywood misuses that power so badly, year after year after year. It instills us, and the weakest among us, with a belief system that's belligerent, and militaristic, and toxically, fundamentalistly masculine, and unsustainable. <laughs> So America has brought suffering to the world through its military-industrial complex. We've all heard that expression. But we often forget about the damage that we cause through our companion business, what I call the Hollywood industrial complex. One manufactures what I think of as the hardware, the other one the software. And you can't have war without both. I felt that if I were going to be effective at making a change, what little change I could in the hearts of my fellow Americans, it would have to be little by little, one bite-sized thing at a time, and so the bite I decided to take on was guns, the 350 million private, domestically owned small guns in the United States. But of course, that's calling that a manageable piece of a bigger problem is absurd, um, so I knew I would have to cut it into yet smaller bites to take it on. Um, I, I thought about our romance with firearms and where it originated from and where this larger militaristic belief system started. I do believe that the gun is what militarism looks like one family at a time, one living room at a time. And there's one entity that has pushed this 
ideology harder and probably more successfully than any other social movement in, in the history of the United States, and that, of course, is the NRA. So if I wanted to begin, I had to begin with the NRA. I decided to try to speak to evangelical Christians. Um, they, they, it was strategic. They support the NRA at 70 plus percent year after year. And I felt that if they could be a little rattled or a little weakened in their support, maybe that third leg of the stool under the NRA might be a little bit weaker and we could make some progress. I also, and forgive the religious metaphor, saw them as low-hanging fruit, an apple. Um, I thought of them as low-hanging fruit because somehow they managed to stitch together belief systems that are just not hospitable to each other. I've for years marveled at how far the rhetoric of conservative evangelicals on guns was from their rhetoric about abortion. I know that liberals, they accuse us of having the same inconsistency, but that's only if you uh, are willing to accept the idea that every abortion is a murder, which is obviously something we can litigate some other time. But given that their stated position time and time and time again is that every single human life is sacred, that every life must be honored, that stand my ground and make my day, and Trayvon Martin got what was coming to him, are really hard positions to square with this. So, of course, there's always Matthew. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, but now, now I say unto you, love your enemy and do good to those that seek to hurt you. That's a much abridged version of a famous passage, of course, but, and if you read the whole passage, it's much more nuanced and much more radical than what I just quoted. But it's hard to square with a posture in which you are willing to shoot a human being who's taking your stereo. And every word of this passage undercuts the current American posture, not only to people outside of the United States, but to each other. And no Americans have more stridently chosen to ignore those words than the right-wing Christian evangelicals who show up every year and listen with rapt attention as Franklin Graham praised the convocation at the NRA convention. Honestly, we cut his prayer into the film and he was at the time talking about uh, background checks. And he, his rationale was extraordinary and it was embedded in his prayer. I'm sorry, I find this so offensive. And he said that we are all already registered in the Lamb's Book of Life. Specious on its face, but as a woman who was raised in a Catholic family to use the Lamb in this instance to justify your weapon is to me just, I, you know, honestly, I felt like Torque Mata just for a minute. I thought I would strap him to the wheel and. <laughs> so the Matthew also can't be squared with what I'm going to read to you are some real life um, bumper stickers. I call them bummer stickers at the NRA because they're so awful. Nine acres of exhibition space they have at the NRA. And the bumper stickers say things like, an armed society is a polite society. I don't shoot to kill, I shoot to stay alive. 911, the government's dead criminal removal service. And when faith won't save you, a firearm will. So there was more to my choice of evangelicals for my first audience than just plain old strategy. And I believe in faith. I believe in people of faith. 
And I believe in those words from Matthew. And I think that history generally moves forward like a train on its rails, right, with this relentless logic, except for the irrational moments. The things we study in school are always the moments when the irrational actor throws himself across the track or hijacks the train or does something that nobody expected. It's the effect of the irrational on history that intrigues me. And there have been no more consistent irrational actors in history than people of faith. What do I mean by irrational actors? They are those that can be relied upon to act not in their own self-interest. They will do crazy things like, for instance, be arrested at a march or allow themselves to be beaten up to make a, a point about violence or get crucified. No more highly irrational act than that. To put it more succinctly, they will do the right thing. And I'm Christian enough to believe that the right thing is right there in what the evangelicals are studying every Sunday when they go to church. I believe in people of faith. I believe that people of faith, for the most part, mean to do well by people. They want to be good people. And that even when I disagree with them, most of them are well-intended and have good hearts. And so I reached out to conservative evangelicals because as conservative as they may be, as hostile to my own political leanings, they will do what they think Jesus is telling them to do, no matter how irrational no matter how inconvenient, no matter how harmful to their own bottom lines. And it's an admirable quality. There are bad actors there, of course. There are charlatans and snake oil salesmen. We have them on the left as well. Of course, their interpretation of their marching orders from Jesus are very different from my own. And of course, some people will never, ever budge. Nevertheless, I believe there is a mole for social change inside of every Christian. <laughs> and that if their inner voices can be just awakened the littlest bit, things would dramatically change. So it was on the basis of that belief that I committed a feminist heresy. I'm surprised they didn't burn me at the stake. Um, I believe very deeply in a woman's right to choose, and I'll go to the, go to the end of my life believing that. Um, Nevertheless, I reached out to find somebody, anybody, on the pro-life right-wing evangelical world who would speak to me. And after much searching, and it should trouble you that it was that hard to find each other, I found the Reverend Rob Shank. Now, the Reverend Rob Shank was the co-founder of Operation Rescue, lifelong friends with Randall Terry, plaintiff on a Supreme Court case about buffer zones around abortion clinics, it goes on and on. Amicus brief writer in the Hobby Lobby decision and just all around kibitzer for right-wing things. I have to tell you on the train on my way down to Washington, I wanted to kill myself. I don't know what I was thinking. This is going to be terrible. And as it turns out, I sat down across from him. First of all, he was as afraid of me as I was afraid of him, which was funny. Um, and he was a really good person. He was a really nice guy. He was super smart and articulate. And shame on me for assuming anything otherwise. So I downloaded him my thinking about what was going on with Christians and evangelicals and the inconsistency, particularly about life. For me, it comes to the standing ground laws. The standing ground laws didn't give you the right to kill someone in self-defense. That right existed in the Magna Carta. You've always had that right. It relieved you of the obligation to retreat from the conflict to make that unnecessary. And when the state decided that the worst possible outcome of this interaction is not a dead body anymore. Something has very fundamentally shifted in my culture, and I don't remember us talking about it. And it's certainly not Christian. 
you know, the first time we talked, he looked at me and he said, well, actually, he said, thanks a lot. Now I'm not going to sleep tonight. And um, I can't go back to not knowing you said that. I've never thought about it before. You're absolutely right. And it'll destroy my life. <laughs> so for five weeks, he thought about it. And then he called me and he said, there's a deep moral failing in the center of my community. I can't pretend I don't know it. Let's do this. So we talked a long time that day. We talked a long time on a lot of phone calls. And then we followed him for about a year and a half with our cameras, taking the questions to churches and talking to his allies and his supporters and his funders and politicians he's known for years. And the result was the armor of light. And I'm going to show you that. I'm an evangelical minister. Praise be thou, Lord God. King that goes to the core of my identity. My constituency would be conservative, very conservative. Thank you, NRA! Thank you! In my community, we talk about the sanctity of life, the value of every human life. Is that a pro-life ethic? It absolutely yes. is, Rob, because the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Three of those bullets had found their target. One of them had entered his right side. When I would hear about shootings, I would pray for the people, but I never thought it would ever happen to us. I never thought. It's vitally important that you help. They will listen to you. If we take guns away, people are just gonna kill people with something else. Let's pray. Father, we know there's a lot of people in this country that would like to register guns and take them away. I'm learning about the place of the NRA and its role in the church. The Bible's very plain about a man who don't protect his wife and kids is worse than an infidel. So what we need is Jesus and the gospel and a sidearm. I'm taking a big risk. If ever I were given the scarlet letter L, I could lose my career. A love for life. That's what this is all about. Fighting for life. I am here today to challenge my fellow clergy. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, fear, ignorance, hatred, vengeance, and put on the armor of life. Let's pray. When I took this film on, I knew it wouldn't be easy to deal with my friends. And I'm not surprised to tell you that I found suspicion and even hostility and even a little bit of worry from some people who thought I was losing my mind. One person told me she'd never speak to me again for legitimizing Reverend Shank. But what really unnerved my friends was that I was nakedly talking about religion. In my world, you don't throw the J word around, you just don't. And if there's something you do every Sunday morning, you stay quiet about it, or Friday evening, you keep it to yourself. I had a contractor, a, a composer, say he might quit if I didn't drop the scene of Rob at a pro-life march. I had friends tell me I'd better tone it down or no one would see it. 
And that's where the lack of religious literacy in my community really shows itself to be a terrible barrier to the very things we claim to want to accomplish. What do they mean by saying no one will see it anyway? Is that like when Yogi Berra says no one goes there anymore because it's too crowded? <laughs> no one who matters is what they meant. Without religious literacy and the loving kindness of mind and heart that come with it, in my view, it could never have reached across that chasm to other people. Why, I asked those who wanted me to tone it down, would I simply use the same instruments, the same tone, the same vocabulary that have never, ever previously managed to speak to the people who don't agree with us already? We are very good at the old preaching to the choir thing, but I had a smart friend say to me once, yes, preaching to the choir is good, choirs need to practice, but we need to try something else from time to time. But what I knew was that if I were going to attempt to reach into a community that might not be very disposed to listen to me, I had to go with love in my heart, acceptance that was sincere, and a willingness to imagine that I could be wrong from time to time, too. Documentarians make films that stand as exclamation points, and I wanted to make a film that was a question mark. Inviting discussion, gentle in spirit, reserved in judgment, and respectful in tone. I had the great advantage, not only having been raised in a religious home, but in a home that was politically conservative, and so I call myself bilingual. You find a way to be able to speak to people if you have love in your heart. To some extent, I paid a price for this. There are festivals that said no to the film that I think otherwise might have taken a film from me, and my average was definitely lower than it should have been. I got a TV deal easy, but I know that PBS just thought, oh, great, I've got a right-wing film. That'll, that'll take the, the, the heat off of me from Congress. And when we did screen it at the usual festivals, the crowds were thin. And when I would stand in line and kind of overhear people's comments, that was the comment. Ugh, why would I want to go see something about religion? Why would I want to go see something about a minister? When I started the film, I had had to tell myself that I shouldn't hope for acceptance from my own people. If I wanted to make a difference, I should just kind of not even try with them. That was... The, the less traction, I, the more I tried with them, the less traction I'd get with the people I was really trying to engage. But there were so many welcome surprises. For one thing, there were people all around me who'd been in my life for years and years and years who would take a little quiet moment and sneak up to me and whisper like, I was raised in a religious house. <laughs> it was really amazing. It was like they were in a closet. Um, and so all of a sudden these people started appearing to me. My Jewish friends are less reluctant to talk about their faith, but I did fear they'd steer clear of the film because he wasn't evangelical after all. Um, that I'm gonna ruin something about the film for you, which is about halfway through he reveals he was born in a Jewish household and converted as a teenager, and my editor gets all credit for figuring out where to put that so that it lands just right. Um, but you could have knocked me over with a feather when on opening night in Tribeca we got invited to be a featured film at the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival. <laughs> so there were surprises. The real surprises were a thousand miles away on the other side of the spiritual and religious divide. You know, I had deliberately cut the film very carefully and with an eye toward being able to hold the attention of conservative folks, but I still gave it a point of view. I didn't hold that back. And I kind of didn't expect I'd succeed, or at least um, I didn't succeed for any of the reasons I was thinking I would. Um, the film was welcomed with open arms across the country, and some of the most, I mean, I'm telling you, right-wing 
spaces you can possibly imagine for one reason, and it's extraordinary to me, because it didn't disrespect them. There were people who stood up in the moments after the film crying and thanking me for not disrespecting them. So I traveled for about two years with the film and with Reverend Shank from church to church and minister to minister, all of them as far from me politically and spiritually as they could possibly be. And everywhere I went, I led with these words, I'm not making this up, I really would do this in a, in a church. I'm a pro-choice feminist all my adult life. But I was raised in a conservative home and I don't disrespect you and I don't think you're crazy and I don't think you've been brainwashed and I don't think you're stupid. That is how I started every conversation. And every conversation proceeded from there in an incredibly respectful and productive way. It's not as hard to do this as we're telling ourselves it is. It involves respect and honesty. And this should trouble us, this fact that they were so shocked to be treated with respect. This should trouble us deeply. If these people were so surprised to be treated with respect, what does that say about how we treat them, not only in media and entertainment, but frankly, across the entirety of the culture? If it's simply a question of respect, I'm trying to figure out why we can't do it. Because we have failed to communicate with these people so egregiously that they've started their own business side by side with ours. They have their own marketing people. They have their own matinee idols. They have their own version of Will It Play in Peoria which is Will It Play in Colorado Springs, by the way. <laughs> the films that they make in this terrible structure, this parallel structure, are terrible, generally speaking. Um, and some of them in a really kind of malevolent way. The ones that push the end of days narrative are getting us closer and closer to the end of days. I mean, it's like a Greek tragedy watching what's happening over there. So very often the Christian films wind up being the most religiously illiterate of all because they're so inhospitable. I understand religious literacy to be the ability to manage yourself in diversity, to be curious enough to listen and learn, to be able to be, to more than tolerate, but to welcome people with different beliefs, to have the capacity to bring all of your certainty about your devotional self with you into the public square while also finding a way to let go of your certainty long enough to love and respect your neighbor in a respectful and honest way. And by this standard, we as makers of media are failing badly. Secular culture fails badly across the board. And I'm all for secular culture, but I think that we've had a bit of a misunderstanding here. Secular culture is a culture that doesn't choose one faith over another. But that doesn't mean it's a culture that banishes faith. This is an entirely different thing. There is room for faith and its expression across secular culture, but just now there's a bit of bullying going on. So one person's belief in Allah should be no more of a threat to me as an atheist than one person's gay marriage should be to an evangelical. The first time we screened Armor of Light for a conservative audience, my thesis of how and why the film might work got tested. It ended and the lights came up and NRA man stood up, and what I've learned in, in, the, in the screenings is NRA man always stands up first. And there might be two, there might be three, but NRA man is always there. He's usually a big guy, he's usually got this particular beard, <laughs> I don't know what that is, and he, he would just 
talk. And you know what I learned from my little brother was when he would want to hit me, I would just put my hand on his forehead and he let him swing because he could never reach me. And then he would tire out and leave me alone. And that's how I would deal with that. I would just let, thank you so much. Please tell me what you're thinking. And they don't know what to do if you don't fight with them. They're there to fight with you. That's what they live for. Um, they're the loud guy at the end of the bar. And what's amazing is, generally, if you let them speak all the way to the end of their, their spiel, and they say t six or eight things that I've heard a thousand times in almost the same words every time, and, uh, and I thank them, once they've done their thing, a hundred other people in that church will stand up and say some of the most open-minded, thoughtful things that you can possibly imagine. They just got bullied into silence, and nobody, none of us had the patience to wait and for the second person to speak and the third person to speak. So in this case, he finished his thing and the second half of my thesis went into action. I said to him, thank you so much for your input. I'm just curious what your wife thinks. And his wife had been like, I, there's a certain kind of woman who sits like this with her purse, her pocketbook. <laughs> she was kind of mousy or whatever and she, she was a little surprised and taken aback and then she leaned forward and she burst into tears, sobbing uncontrollably. And she needed a couple minutes to pull herself together and she looked at me, set jaw, very strong. This is out of control. It has to stop. That's one house huddle, you guys. That's how the world changes. So. Sorry. In one household, I knew there had to be some people alert enough to what they've been taught from childhood that something about the current arrangement was simply not right. All she needed was to be asked, and all she needed was to be reminded of who she was and what she believed. So I know that things won't change overnight, and I know that one film can't fix all the problems, but I think this is how social change happens. It's not measurable. It happens slowly, maybe over generations, but one household at a time. And the secular rejection of religious discourse does not come from nowhere we know. It can feel like our country got hijacked in the 1980s by Jerry Falwell and Cole Company. And of course, that's got a lot to do with the jitteriness a lot of secular people feel when they talk about religion. But we in the entertainment business need to do some work. The level of distrust that I was up against at the beginning of every interaction in the evangelical world made me really sad. <coughs> We need to wake up and understand that there are masses of human beings, decent, kind, wonderful human beings that we dismiss and ignore every single day. And it makes no sense as people who see ourselves as communicators to continue to ignore that they exist. And it makes no sense for those of us who want to make some money on a movie from time to time to ignore their existence too. So a great re-education has to happen. People of faith have to come together with the secular entertainment business and they have to reintroduce themselves and we have to just push the reset button. And without a reset like this, I don't think we'll ever stop leaving a large portion of audiences and Americans out in the cold. So we would 
love to have you entertain questions. We're going to ask that you wait for the mic to get to you um, and that you could please identify yourself when you uh, speak. But thank you. No, my, my friend Ann wanted to... Oh, okay. Hi, Abby. I'm Ann Browdy, yes. as you know. Um, thank you so much. This was such a joy. And uh, the reason it's such a joy is because even though you say that you're not a person of faith, we can feel the love. And... What I want to know is, I have to tell you that you completely ruined almost all documentary films for me about <laughs> 10 years ago when you explained why there's no narrator. And I can't watch films with narrators anymore. The, the yeah. power structure is yeah. too deeply embedded into yeah. the message, especially in, I work in Native American studies, and. That yeah. narrator is just the voice of colonialism. Yeah. Um, so once, what I want to know is how does the love that guides your filmmaking and that is so palpable to us um, guide your artistic choices and your um, the the decisions and well, I think you mm -hmm. get what I mean. Yeah. Thank you for I'm that. Do that. You know, I think I'm glad that I waited into my 40s to start um, because I was old enough to have a mind of my own. I went to Yale for my um, BA and an MA at Stanford and then a PhD at Columbia. And, you know, I, I like a lot of us, was taught that art is only serious if it's mean or, or, or negative or cynical or, or you know, and of course, having come with my last name to a PhD program, I actually experienced a certain amount of prejudice and presumption about my politics and about my capacity to even understand real art um, because my family's name is associated with just shallowness and saccharine. Um, so I had to get through those days and I had to get past those understandings to be able to say, in my heart and trust my instincts enough um, to know that a film could be beautiful and it could have a kind heart. Films have hearts. <laughs> and I love a film with a kind heart um, and not be unserious. Um, so I don't know if in the opening shot of the trailer is a really beautiful shot of him sitting in relief against a stained glass window and over our credits is a really beautiful shot of the rain melting on it. There, there we found a a, a, an angel melting in the snow that you know there there were there were moments of like that that I had a great DP who I just you know we were just eating all that up because there was so much visual possibility and um, and it was lush and I find I think that helps you love the character when you when you're really like reveling in the visual stuff um, so I'm glad I trusted my judgment on that, to let, let us love this minister. Who, by the way, just went on NPR two weeks ago. He has a book out called Costly Grace. You should have him here to speak. He's really interesting. He started the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. He's been abandoned by every funder he has. Oh my God, he just turned 60 and he has no funders. And um, he was on NPR. Terry Gross asked him where he was on abortion. 
He said, I've come to the conclusion that it's such a deeply felt and spiritual personal decision that the government should have nothing to do with it. I overshot. <laughs> I really didn't mean to do that, but yeah, kind of amazing, right? But you know, it came from me saying, um, I really, really, really have no interest in changing your mind. I just want us to talk. So, anybody else? Yes. Hi, my name is Doug Henderson. Uh, thank you for your comments. I, I really enjoyed them. I, there was an op-ed in the New York Times this morning. I don't know if you saw it. Mm -hmm. It just talked about how people of religion on the conservative movement actually share many of the views of liberals and race, identity, um, yeah. and, and other subjects. Well, NRAs may be a little different on some of the topics, but did you find that to be the case? Absolutely. Uh, very much so in all your It was kind of shocking, actually. Um, how many things we agreed on. Um, I think, I think that, that, that what separates us often is like, when they say I love my neighbor, they see the neighbor as somebody in much closer proximity to them. Like they draw a line closer to home um, in terms of the people they want to care about. And um, I, I saw that in my parents as conservatives. There's this, I know it sounds crazy, there's a scene in the movie The Butler where, um, Ronald Reagan is in his office and he's talking about, um, uh oh, these activists are saying to him, you have to divest in South Africa. And he's saying, no way, I'll never do it. And the butler is there listening and kind of offended, right? Because he's, you know, his son is active on the issue. And the butler leaves and Ronald Reagan jumps up from the middle of this meeting and runs outside of the office, the Oval Office, and catches the butler and says, I just want to let you know, I want it, I want it, I'm so excited. You're gonna be the first blackhead butler and I'm making sure you get a raise because I just found out how you've been kept down for so long. You know, it's a decent, wonderful human moment. Just 10 seconds after his horrible indecency um, on the question of apartheid. And um, that is my experience of conservatives like my parents. They would never be unkind. They would go to hell and back for someone they knew or someone close to them, um, but they just couldn't extend it out past that circle. And I think that's where we fall apart, um, is not around the basic principles about loving people or generosity. It's about like where does the line get drawn. You know? And that's why immigration is turning out in the anti-refugee sentiment. It's just outside the line. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Abby. Thank you for being here, and also thank you for the amazing work that you do. I think that it inspires all of us here. And my question goes to you as a director. Um, when you're portraying the stories of the, these, na these narrations, these stories that you're telling, what techniques or how do you handle or make sure that your implicit biases are not being there? Mm -hmm. That the way that you're portraying these characters are not um, cartoonistic or characteristic, mm -hmm. or that, that you have the dignity and show the complexity of the person and of the um, society you're reflecting on the screen, especially um, considering your background, considering you're a white woman, um, a liberal, or mm -hmm. like in other senses that these people might see you or that your friends will see you. Um, how, yeah. as a director, did you, do you wrestle with them? Thank right. you. Right. Um, the first thing I had to learn was um, let somebody who's criticizing me, whether I disagree with them or not, and of course you disagree with everybody who criticizes you. <laughs> Um, you don't argue with that. 
even if you think they're wrong, you hear what they're telling you because there's something valuable in that. And so learning to shut up and let someone criticize you was maybe the hardest thing for me when I started making films. And very valuable things have happened in those moments. We, in this film, didn't cover anything about African-American evangelicals. And um, because it's very different with African-American evangelicals, and it's like, that's a whole other movie. Um, but to, to have it to our film and as though black people don't exist is probably not a good idea either. And so you know, that was something that came up in an early screening. So we show it to people we trust along the way in early cuts, you have to. Um, and you hear what people tell you and you bring in a diversity of people who can help you see things you might be blind to. Um, and you try your hardest to be, I mean, if you treat every single person as yourself, if you really imagine yourself in their position, I mean, I, I really went out of my way not to humiliate anyone and there were people I wanted to humiliate. <laughs> Especially the guy who says um, um, bad guy with a gun, good guy with a gun. You know, he, he was hard for me. He was definitely the hardest, the most test I ever had. But um, he's really happy with how he is in the film. And I, I feel really proud of that. I didn't want anybody to feel disgraced or tricked or humiliated. So I think empathy is really, and humility are the two things, and you just keep listening to people. Yeah. Uh, thank you. My name is Karida. Uh, I'm from UNICEF with the Communication for Development uh, section in, in UNICEF headquarters. And thank you for the story. Um, it's our work. It's what we do also. Um, the question I have, and it goes to the, the opening um, story also from reading from history of recognizing that religion can lead us to salvation or uh, what was the... Uh, damnation. And then you made reference to that in terms of Hollywood. You know that media is so powerful, it can lead us to salvation or damnation. And yet we speak about media as an art, you know, and then we listen to Sarah Bin's definition of religious literacy, and we know that from what she's saying, you know, religion is embedded. It's not something separate. So as a filmmaker, where does the accountability side come in? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, art is embedded too. You know? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So how do we, recognizing this, where, yeah. how do we just not leave art to run on its course if it can lead us to salvation or damnation? Well, I mean, I think that we, we ha each have to, as filmmakers and communicators, be responsible and respectful of the power that we have. And I, hate being critical of other people, but um, there are a lot of people who, do, who don't take their power seriously. And so, um, you know, Quentin Tarantino is somebody who a lot of people believe is a great, great director, and he's certainly technically very gifted, but the casualness with which he treats death, the, the, the attractiveness he gives the weapons and the people wielding the weapons, I think that's positive poison. That's actual poison. And, uh, and um, I can't believe we elevate him the way we do. So changing Hollywood is going to take some work <laughs> because that's a big thing. Um, but uh, in my tiny, teeny way, I'm trying my best, partly by getting more women filmmakers out there and people of color and marginalized people and people we don't generally listen to because they have all... One reason there's a relationship between women and peace is that we are smaller. <laughs> we don't... 
We don't have the physical strength. And like throughout our lives, we have to resolve conflicts without force. We don't have a choice. We may never have consciously thought that to ourselves. We just do it because the, it's scary. So, you know, we have a wider range of tools for resolving conflict, you know, and, and so we need to be hearing from people who are on the wrong end of conflict, who, who, who can construct stories that have us have different, you know, there have been really great stories about nonviolence that you didn't even know were stories of nonviolence. Argo was a film about a war not starting, and the, the, the hardest thing I'm finding is telling peace stories it's because it's kind of a non-event or non-measurable success if you, if you succeed. It's, it's all, a lot of people sitting around and talking to each other, which is boring as well, <laughs> not very cinematic. So, I mean, I think how we hold, we hold, we have to hold each other accountable. I believe that a lot would happen if we could move people, and maybe UNICEF can play a role in this, um, to stop giving our money to people like Quentin Tarantino. Just, uh, let's organize and say, like, no, I mean, I've been saying that for years. He can't have my money. The Hangover guys can't have my money, and Michael Bay can't have my money, and <laughs> they can't have my money. They, they just can't. And uh, if more people said that, there would be, there would be a, you know, a big change. I think we have time for two more questions. Let's maybe ask both of them and then have okay. you respond. Thank you. Marco Sullivan, thank you very much, Abigail. Uh, I love the line about conflict being inevitable, but violence is, uh, is not. Uh, Hollywood's history, I, I'm thinking even back to World War II, uh, was almost like Hollywood, and you use the term, the uh, software, the uh, industrial complex, uh, being a, a, a propaganda arm of the government for World War II and where things have been going. And I think of a mile 22, uh, uh, 13 hours, uh, American Sniper, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Hurt Locker, or what have you. Um, there's always going to be some element, and there's such an attraction, even the trailers or the shorts they showed during the war going way back. Um, do you have an uh, active uh, role within Fork that you're seeking out uh, projects like that, maybe bigger theater other than just uh, documentaries, feature films, uh, to do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm starting a studio initiative in the hopes of doing bigger films, more commercial films that use these themes because there has to be a counterweight, there has to be a counterproposal, right? My, my family actually did a lot of propaganda um, during World War II, um, and my uncle was, um, the, the animators went on strike in the 1930s, and he never got over it. He was so angry about that, and, uh, and so he went really way over to the far right wing after the war was over, um, and he was a conscious propagandist. And like, I always get really mad when people push back on me at this. He made a film in the mid-1960s with the source material that was the most racist man you could imagine, Rudyard Kipling, about how people should stay with their own kind. <laughs> Jungle Book. It's a charming film. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the problem, is talented people can package ugly in some very beautiful wrapping, and uh, that's the thing we have to push back on. And have you yet worked proactively with uh, gender and media with uh, Gina Davis's group? Uh, I know Gina in? very well, yeah, yeah. And certainly the research that she's done, and, and um, oh my God, without her, I don't know where we'd be. I love her. Excellent, please continue. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks. We have a lot to
Colin Leach, the, some of the issues uh, in, in the evangelical movement would seem to be political plants. And that came to mind when the gun scenes came into the film. Mm -hmm. So for instance, uh, evangelicals might be against gay marriage and they would, they would point to the Bible and find it there. Yeah. Very hard to find that sort of uh, adherence to, to guns in Jesus. But I wonder if, if, if you found that to be true and were aware, aware of it as you worked. Was some of the stuff really coming out of their biblical consciousness and had some of it been come from the outside right. for political purposes? Right. Thank you. The, the thing about fundamentalists is there really is no such thing. You know, if, if a fundamentalist is a person who believes absolutely, totally in their inerrant truth of the text, then you would lose your mind, right? Because it's contradicting itself all over the place. So, so the, the, the NRA crowd, um, they're very heavy on the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament, because there's very little in the New Testament that supports their view. There is Luke, I believe it's 2436. They all quote the same passage to me. Jesus says, leave your, um, sell your cloak and buy a sword to the apostles as they're getting ready to go out. Okay, that's nice. I actually finally, after having heard it for the 58th time from somebody justifying owning a gun, and went and read the whole context, and this is in the context of, um, he's just said, put your sword down. He who lives by the sword dies. He's just said that about eight verses before, and what he's saying is leave your, sell your cloak, buy a sword, you know, to protect yourself, um, and, and Peter says, I have two. And Jesus says, no, no, that's enough. So it's kind of a gun control verse. So, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's really, they labor so hard to find anything in the New Testament that justifies what they've got to say. You hear a guy refer to a passage from the Old Testament that you're worse than an infidel if you don't protect your family. And that's actually not what that passage says. Um, so it's, there's like, you know, the, the, we know there's tribalism, and anger, and there's just irrational levels of fear, and they front-loaded, in many cases, they front-loaded their conclusions, and, and this is not how you're supposed to read the Bible, right? It's very fundamental. You read the Bible against yourself, and they've got it backwards. They're, they're deciding everything and then fishing in the Bible for what they need to support what they've already decided. And, and that's why it can't be sustained. I really don't believe it can be sustained. The angry guys that you see and, and the really, really loud people will sustain it until they, they probably keel over as a stroke. But the, but the people around them are asking themselves, as, as many of us did as children, right? When you heard something in church or whatever that didn't make sense to you, you know, you put that away and later you take it out. And if somebody outside of you um, gives you a reinforcement for that doubt, then suddenly the doubt blossoms into something real. So I, that's happening in lots of churches where this film is showing. Those little doubts are starting to blossom. Um, but in terms of, I mean, I, maybe I'm, I'm not a biblical scholar, but um, I have to say that their biblical scholarship is underwhelming. <laughs> Actually, I'm not so sure. I think I, I was about ready to apologize to you for not also introducing your, your, your expertise in biblical hermeneutics. In my <laughs> <laughs> 
so forgive me. Should do public apology. I can spell biblical hermeneutics. <laughs> Don't we all? Anyway, um, thank you all for being with us. There is a reception right down the hall at the end of the hall in the brown room. We'd love to have you join us, and please, please uh, join me in a warm appreciation for Abigail.